0: hi and welcome back this is police stories podcast episode 36. Uh, this is a series of short stories about my 28 year career in the uk police force across three different forces and various different specialisms um one of which we're on now which is if you've been listening is all about firearms work and we've dealt with quite a bit last week um And there's no light subjects in firearms, of course, but last week was uh, suicide bombers and a few of the moral issues around pulling the trigger, etc. Yeah, a difficult subject for sure. But this week we're going to move on to something a bit different. Um, Thanks for downloads, by the way. Um, Fantastic week on downloads again. It just keeps growing, which is is really good, so thank you. And uh, yeah, this week we're going to talk about... So uh, if you remember, I'd become a specialist firearms officer. I'd done the extra course at that entailed um so now i was doing a lot of plain clothes work uh lots of support to various agencies as well as our own kind of um pre-planned work you know which centered a lot around the resting you know probably you know the most violent most aggressive um kind of baddest people really um or also and this is one of the things we'll talk about today if evidence was believed to it was going to be lost you know unless uh, the arrest was made very very quickly and you'll see in a bit how we achieve that but um, I'd been a, an SFO for about two years at this point point. Um, and it was decided that I was going to be sent off to do the uh, intervention course now the intervention if you look on the profile picture of the the podcast you'll kind of see the men in black there one of those is me I'm the one looking backwards but It's all, you know, kind of lots of ballistic armour and men in black and, you know, ballistic helmets. Um, But it's all about uh, sort of entering houses rapidly with the use of stun grenades. Um, And normally to gain that element of surprise, uh, both to protect the officers going in and also potentially any, um, you know, would-be victims inside. Because if you're doing that, like I say, you're going in to get a particularly bad person um, and ultimately probably trying to end a siege and maybe rescue uh you know somebody who's being held hostage inside. Not always, but as again as we'll hear in a bit. But it was decided I go off to do this course. Now certainly this course was quite well sought after, you know, you had to get to a decent level of competence in terms of your training and uh you know your shooting skills and, and just generally be, I think, relatively well thought of at this point and a sort of a, a trusted hand if you like um so presumably i was one of those by then and uh, normally the course was run in house i think it was 2 weeks long it was normally run in house by my own force uh, with the my own instructors you know but every now and then we would do training with neighbouring forces and also different forces altogether and the whole idea of that is and i think i spoke about it last week you know on the dive team we did it as well it's all about knowing how your your other colleagues in other forces work because you might see something that's you know a really good idea and you take it back with you You know so we all develop from it um, and equally if you're ever called upon to work with each other you know you need to know how each other's works so I actually went to the neighboring force to do my intervention course with uh, a friend of mine a colleague um, who ended up becoming a, a firearms instructor himself and it was a really really good course thoroughly enjoyed it lots of very fast shooting Lots of shooting on the move because generally, you know, you're you're planted, as they say. You know, you're standing still when you take your shots. Um, But intervention is very fast moving, so we did a lot of work around shooting on the move, i.e., walking forward, uh, never running, but certainly walking forward and taking shots at that point. You know, you didn't have a chance, an opportunity to stop, stand still, you know, get a proper sight picture and all the rest of it. So a lot of it was snap shooting, instinctive shooting, very quick shooting which yeah, from my point of view, very, very enjoyable. And um, lots of work with stun grenades, um, lots of ladder work, um, because uh, when you go into a house, um, you know, you generally don't sort of pile in through the front door in the obvious way. You want multiple entry points all simultaneously. You know, you're totally looking at this shock and awe for that house. So, you know, yes, some people might go through the front door, but some will go through the lounge window some will go through a rear second floor bathroom window, you know, hence there being ladders. And we use a lot of assault ladders, which are, um, you know, similar to the ladder you've probably got in your shed, but the difference is they're, they're wider, you know, they could be maybe five or six rungs width. So you could actually have five or six officers standing sort of shoulder to shoulder with each other. And then also on the outside of the ladder itself would be an extra rung at various places. And that was there so that, Um, One officer normally would be designated as the sort of stun grenade um, person and he or she would stand on that outer rung and once the window was smashed would be feeding stun grenades into the window while the team went up and passed him or her. Um, on the middle rungs of the ladder, if that makes sense, so you imagine this this ladder, you know, that's like you know four or five rungs wide, so lots of people can go up and down it. But these one or two on the outside, on these outer rungs, can can stay stable, and they can either be providing, uh, like I say, feeding stun grenades in, or possibly arm cover as well. So one might be um, smashing the window and feeding in stun grenades. Another one might have arm cover on the room, so that in that second it takes for someone to get through the team to get through that broken window. There is arm cover on that room, so should the bad guy or girl come out, you know, and present a threat, then they could be dealt with. Um, but yeah, course was brilliant, and I went up to um, North Wales. There's a, a killing house up there. I think uh, that's what the military call it. Certainly, it's probably not uh, the best name from a police point of view, but that's what it is effectively. It's a series of buildings um, that you can train at, and they have kind of replaceable windows, re- replaceable doors window frames and things like that so you can basically um smash them up a bit really you know is what it comes down to and also that is where we looked at something called explosive method of entry so when you sort of when you see the guys and girls on the telly you know hitting a door the big red key as they like to say or, or an enforcer to give it its proper name and um, that is called moe method of entry that's what all the sort of uh, gaining entry to that that is and it started off as you know Way back, it used to be your foot, you know, but uh, many bad backs later. Um, we don't tend to kick indoors. I mean, there might still be a case for it, depending on how urgent it is, but generally you don't kick indoors now. You'd use some sort of apparatus. So you've got, yeah, the, the enforcer. You've got maybe a hoolie bar, which we use a lot, which is like a massive crowbar, effectively, that's about three or four foot long with a big spike on one end. So you can use it for sort of jemmy and windows opening things, but also... If you hit windows with a spike, you know you can shatter them. Really good bit of kit, and we carried that a lot. Um, there's also all sorts of uh, things, uh, hydraulic frame spreaders that would uh, sort of when the, when you press a button, if you had it, an electric one that was in a pack, it would spread the frame, and then the lock would just pop out on the door, so you could pretty much open the door just by pushing it with your hand. Um, and, and nowadays, and I never use them, but when you when you look going forward, you see people now using. You know sort of petrol driven disc cutters and chainsaws i've seen and all sorts and method eventually actually used um on, on intervention on the course i was on we also used um shotguns very very cut down short barrel shotguns um specifically designed for the role and they had um, hatton rounds in which is basically powdered lead set in a wax um, and it's fired at hinges um obviously very very hard and then it would blow hinges off doors and that would enable you to push them in and yeah we, we did a lot of work with the met with the explosive method entry, entry which was just coming to the fore at the time uh come from the military really but uh it's effectively detonation cord that's put around sheet supply with that held up against you know kind of uh windows or doors etc and when they detonate you know the whole thing just kind of implodes allowing you uh you know a way in so yeah, it was a thoroughly good course, really enjoyed it. Uh, managed to pass it, which was handy. Um, it was definitely a pass or fail, you know, because you may not have been up to the standard. But uh, And also, there was a certain amount of pressure on us. You know, because it was a neighbouring force, we wanted to give a good, good account of ourselves. You know, we, don't, we didn't want the people from this force thinking that ours was no good, you know. So we wanted to represent them, and, and I think we did a reasonably good job of that. So And, in fact, we went on to do various jobs with them in the future. And, in fact, the job we're going to talk about now is one of those so um there wasn't really an on-call system as such uh for when there was a big job happened overnight if you know if everyone was asleep obviously there was always a a armed cover within my force but if it was a big job then they would have to call out uh you know extra officers more officers more resources would be required so um basically a bit of a ring round you know and if you knew that you were you know out drinking or if you're away on holiday or something, you'd let the kind of duty sergeant know perhaps so they wouldn't ring you. But, and equally, there may well be people that said, you know, I am free tonight. So if, if something happens, then give us a call kind of thing. Um, there was only about 30 people on the team in total that were at SFOs. I think that's about right. And um, so it was potluck really, whether you got a call or not. And on this occasion, sure enough, um, quite late, uh, it was about eleven o'clock, I think, on midnight, got a call from work. I was meant to be days off. And they said, Can you come into the office? You know, there's a job on. Um, and they don't tell you any more than that. You just you've got to go in. So I had about half an hour drive in. And quite often when you get there, there'd be normally if they called in another sort of car's worth, it would be three, three more cops there. You know, that's what you'd expect to see if there was a job. And and maybe if it was a bigger job that needed you know it's a big property it need a lot of people to contain it or something it might have been you know six officers but that was pretty unusual to us it was generally three that were in there so on this particular occasion when i got into the car park at work half an hour drive to work got there the car park was virtually full you know and there's quite a few spaces so i was thinking that's strange you know i wonder what's going on so um basically uh you know, we, and we virtually always worked in our own force. We did do some, some mutual aid helping other forces out, but again, that was quite unusual. But when we got to the office, we were basically split off into different cars and vans and pretty much everything we had, um, and just told to, to get on the van and all the car, you know, and, and that was it. Off, off we pop, basically. We're, we're going off to a job. We knew nothing about it. we, Uh, we'd armed up first so we were all armed and we all had um, full intervention you know we'd had the whispers that it was going to be an intervention which was quite exciting because I can't remember if I'd done one at that point Um, I don't think I had this was probably my first one so yeah you know I won't lie I was definitely a little bit excited you know because I was thinking wow you know this this is going to be a big job because Quite often an intervention wouldn't be authorised by the bosses, you know, because it was so aggressive, it was so overt, it was such a show of strength, you know, it was about as close to the military as the police could get, you know, so invariably they would try and come up with another tactic prior to using it, but sometimes, you know, that just isn't going to happen so uh off we went and we were told that we were going to the neighboring force mutual aid we were armed up and we'd be briefed when we got there so of course you can imagine it was about a two-hour trip or something and uh so there was lots and lots of you know sort of supposition on the way oh what are we doing you know where are we going and what we're going to do when we get there and how big is the job and what is it you know and, and and all these sorts of things which sometimes is not that helpful because um you can kind of wind yourself up thinking it's going to be one thing and it's not. But anyway, when we got there and, and I'd been to this force before because it was the force actually that I'd done my intervention course in. So I knew the headquarters and I knew the place quite well. And we were shown up to a briefing room. Um, and normally when you had a briefing from an officer, it would be, you know, maybe a chief inspector, perhaps a superintendent, something like that. If it was a, a bigger job, you know, it was rarely above that. But while we were in this big sort of auditorium, so there was probably 50 guys in the room of which 20 odd were ours. Um, the ACC, the Assistant Chief Constable from this force, came in. um, So that was a bit of an eye-opener because, you know, it's very rare for a senior officer like that to give you a briefing at a job. You know, uh, they're very much management level and, you know, they're all about, you know, kind of resources and um, managing people and cars and things like that as opposed to perhaps operational policing, you know. So, yeah, we got this briefing anyway and it uh, it was a really nasty job. What had happened was... And it had been going on for, they didn't know exactly how long, but but certainly a year it had been going on in the local area that, to where I was then. Um, basically, a number of Indians had been targeted. And now the local Indians were known, as I believe a lot of Indians do, you know, gold jewellery is really important to them. It's part of their culture. And um, so they, they generally have a lot of it, you know, and that's quite well known. So in the past, I'd done jobs where on low-level robberies and things, you know, Indians had been specifically targeted because they had, you know, a lot of gold jewellery, which obviously is very valuable. And particularly at the time, I think, you know, you know how gold prices fluctuate. I think gold at the time was absolutely through the roof. You know, we're talking this is over twenty years ago, but. Um, so it was, you know, any sort of gold was was worth something. And, uh, yeah, large amounts were very quickly into the sort of hundreds of thousands. And what had been happening was a really nasty job. One of the local kind of wannabe gangsters, I guess you'd call him, in the area had been targeting young Indian um, boys of uh, the very sort of rich and wealthy families from that area, knowing that the families that they came from were not only very well off, but also possessed a lot of gold and of course the thing with gold is um a lot of the time it's not traceable and of course it can be melted down you know so it's been the sort of uh currency of choice for for bad guys throughout the you know um certainly the recent history because it's not like you know cash that's got serial numbers and or whatever you know it, it's firstly if it's plain gold it's not that identifiable and certainly if you've got the contacts you know you can get it melted down um, and it's still worth something you know um, a lot obviously so what happened was he'd been going around targeting the young boys from these families when they're out and about in the town centres and a lot of these guys weren't that subtle you know they had a bit of money so they were driving like you know Uh, big, powerful cars, you know, BMWs, Mercedes, etc all lowered, you know, in neon lights and sort of, so they did kind of stand out a bit, you know, Um, and they were being targeted when they were off by themselves, they were being followed off and people were doing things like, you know, uh, pretending to break down in front of them or, you know, pretending to have a puncture or something like that and stopping in front of them. And the moment that the car in front had stopped them, it was a bit like a pack, really, a tactical pursuit and containment that the police would do. The moment they were stopped, another car would come right up behind them and block them in. And then, you know, um, some seriously heavy guys, you know, would be out of that car, opening the door and dragging them out and basically kidnapping them. You know, And they were getting shoved into vans or into the backs of cars and things, you know, by the by the heavy mob, effectively. It is the sort of stuff, you know, you see and hear about on the telly, but it was real. So these young lads, who were kind of, you know, late teens, early 20s, were taken off to remote locations, and they were effectively tortured. All sorts of really, really unpleasant things happened to them. They were burnt with cigarettes. They had one that particularly sort of stood out, uh, their sort of MO, uh, their modus operandi, how they did it was they used to use pull cues and actually shove paw cues up their backsides, Um, of these young lads uh, while, you know, burning them with cigarettes and irons. I mean, it was really sadistic, horrible torture, you know. Um, And what they were doing is while all this was going on, they were filming it on mobile phones or, you know, uh, video cameras or or whatever format it was. I think they used several. And they were then sending them uh, anonymously to the families and basically saying, we've got your boy you know, we know you've got, you know, particularly I think it was tied in a lot with when the weddings were. So when there was a big Indian wedding, they knew uh, the criminals knew that a lot of extra gold would be coming in to the area by visiting family. You know, so there was even more sort of gold available. And uh, they're basically saying, yeah, um, unless you give us, you know, uh, X amount of gold or all the gold you've got or, or you know, a serious amount of gold, we're going to continue um, to do this to your boy. And also, if you report it to the police, then, you know, you'll never see them again. I mean, they're really, you know, uh, really nasty stuff. And, of course, from the family's point of view, um, there was an awful lot of embarrassment. You know, they knew um, what had happened to their sons. And, of course, no one wanted to speak about it. So it, it went on for some time. Like I say, I'm pretty sure it was over a year uh, before anyone eventually reported it to the police because they were just too embarrassed for their family and for their sons um but this guy had made a lot of money you know we're talking into the millions i think it ended up as being uh, by doing this um but he was very cocky he had a really big house he had like massive electric gates you know it was really secure he had kind of high walls all around uh and he boasted that the police would never get into his house they just you know they couldn't get through um well that was a big mistake i can tell you uh because we like a challenge and also, um, he'd made it clear to other people there was obviously we were obviously using what we call chizzes, which is covert human intelligence sources. Some people would call them grasses, snouts, whatever. But basically, an informant, a police informant, was obviously on the inside or close to this guy, and uh, they were letting us know that he'd made it very clear. And I think he was sort of freely talking about it at, when he was out and about with people, that all the evidence of these offences, you know, these horrible torture that was filmed on phones I think mainly um, was stored in a microwave at home and his intention was that while the police were trying to you know bash down his door and not getting very far because he would had it reinforced and he had you know security grills up and like I say these massive gates remember the massive gates because they'll come in later Um While the police were sort of hammering away trying to get in, he would just calmly go down to his microwave and turn his microwave on. And the thinking was, from his point of view, that all those phones would be, you know, irreparably damaged. And so would all the memory and anything that was held on those um, devices. So that all the evidence would be lost. And he was, you know, very cocky that he would then get away with it because he felt that no one would ever testify against him. So, unbeknown to me and to most of my team, um, I think three of the. Um, instructors from our force had you know, found out about this job some uh, weeks before and basically had been asked to plan uh, the job and how to get in so that when we went down there on this night, this was the first most of us, including me, knew about it. Um, but the plans were in place so that we were ready to go. So we had this briefing off the ACC that told us all about what was going on and then he said, and now we're going to move into the attack phase. You know, We're ready to arrest and we think we've come up with a plan of how we can get into that address quite quickly, which we were kind of intrigued about because um, we'd already had, you know, seen the pictures and the footage of of the address and sure enough, it was, you know, proper Fort Knox. It was, uh, it looked very, very secure. So... Uh, and the ACC signed off by saying, and, um, and your guys, your instructors, you know, and he named them, said really good guys. They've come up with a fantastic idea. He said, I'm not sure it's ever been done before in policing. So this could be a first. And of course, now we were like, what the hell have they come up with? You know, this this sounds brilliant. So what they'd come up with was one of the instructors or certainly somebody on the team had a lot of um, rural links and, and links with farmers. In fact, I think his family either was farmers or he'd come from farmers or they, or they knew farmers very well or something like that. And he'd done in his younger days a fair bit of driving of tractors and things. Um, so he'd put up the idea that why don't we use a tractor to, um, to break down these gates? And in fact, um, a tractor with the two spikes fitted to the front, and I think they normally use them for jabbing the big round hay bales, you know, and lifting them up. The intention was that we were going to uh, or he was going to drive this tractor up to the front gates spike the front gates and then raise the prongs and basically rip the gates from their hinges or at least lift them enough for us to get in and you know we were all pretty fit guys so um he only had to lift them kind of you know 2 or 3 feet and we'd be under them and in um and I mean it just blew us away we were like wow this sounds you know crazy but yeah maybe it'll work you know and it was the only way realistically we were going to get into there quite quickly so um all the planning was done that was the fantastic thing from our point of view they'd already planned all this out we literally just had to get kitted up we were signed into our different teams um my role was to go around to the rear of the premises um and then uh one of our number threes, which was everyone got numbered off depending on what your role was, but number three was an MOE. They were the specialists that were going to get us in. We'd identified that the rear doors were sort of big patio glass doors, and that a hooli bar was going to be spiked into these doors. Now, because it's this kind of shatterproof glass that doesn't go into big shards that's going to cut you if there's an accident, um, you can basically once they're shattered, you know, once they're hit with a with a spike, you can just walk straight through them, and it leaves this sort of comedy human outline in the glass. Um, it takes a little bit of nerve to do it, but once you've done it a few times, you know, you get confident that it's okay. So that number three's role was firstly to spike the glass and secondly, and this might sound a bit weird, but everyone that then entered the property and went past him, he literally would put his hand on their shoulder for a second and just say, wait, wait, wait. You know, so each person that passed him, he just briefly touched them for a second, split second on the shoulder and just said, wait or slow, you know, something like that. And the idea was that, you can imagine your testosterone and your kind of, you know, adrenaline is is through the roof at this point. And to do your job you have to be able to, you know, keep control of yourself, um, but also stay incredibly focused, you know, laser focused for a job like this. Um it was decided that we wouldn't use stun grenades. Um I think there was some concern there might have been children in the house and you just can't use stun grenades around kids well or it's not ideal i mean there's probably circumstances you would but for whatever reason well that was the reason you know it was decided we wouldn't use stun grenades on this occasion so and our main role for being used was to prevent him um basically destroying all that evidence on those phones to get in quickly so we had floor plans of the house we had the blueprints we knew the layout um we'd marked out uh, in the backyard with tape you know about how the the property was so we knew you know kind of right i'll go in through that back door I kind of turn left, I go up the stairs and there's a bathroom, you know, and my job is to cover that bathroom or clear that bathroom, basically. Other people had bedrooms and people had cupboards and, you know, the kitchen and the lounge and all that Um So bearing in mind now time was, I think it was kind of, I don't know, one o'clock in the morning. And I think we intended to hit the door um, or the gates at about 3am. Now, bearing in mind, we'd brought a tractor with us. You know, I didn't know this at at this point because it was off the back of our convoy, but we had a full on, you know, monster green tractor with us on a low loader and that was being unloaded uh, nearby. It was quite near to a big shopping centre, this place, and um, they'd unloaded it, and the driver, um, our guy, was was sat with it waiting, and he was within about kind of five minutes of the address. So what happened was we all got kitted up, we got assigned our roles, and we headed out to the address, and... Um, we stacked up, we got the tractor down uh, and we basically um, followed the tractor down. We, we got it to the end of the street where the house was and then we had people up and outside, literally standing outside the house because <laughs> one thing you don't want to do is get this wrong. You, you really don't want to go and uh, rip Mrs. Miggins' gate off the hinges you know, with your tractor and then she goes, oh, do you want so-and-so? No, he's next door. You know, It has happened, although probably not with a tractor before. So, um, yeah, so... Sure enough, most bizarre scene, three o'clock in the morning, obviously pitch black still. There's 20 guys all dressed in full intervention kit. So we've got, you know, the, the ballistic helmets on all in black, you know, dripping with kind of guns and um, fairly g'd up, but trying to hold it together. And and off, off it goes, you know, this tractor goes chundling down the, the road and the, and we're all stacked behind it and we're just kind of walking pace behind it very slowly, just taking our time and, and and winding our way down the road. And if I remember right, the road was straight initially and then there was a bend and then the house we were going to attack was just around the corner. So it was quite good. It afforded us a decent, you know, uh, run up at this house without being seen. So that's what we did. Off we go. And, uh, you know, sight to behold, we, we turn the corner. Sure enough, our man in the tractor turns into the gates, put the prongs in and rips them up. And they came off their hinges. They both lifted up. Now, it wasn't perfect. They didn't come completely. So you could just stroll in. But they did enough and they came up about three or four feet, you know, and there was a gap, a decent gap for us to get underneath. So it wasn't like we had to belly crawl or anything underneath it. So we we're able just to stoop down, get under these gates. But can you imagine, you know, in this quiet residential, quite posh area, three o'clock in the morning and crash, you know, a tractor's gone smashed into these gates, he's ripped off the hinges um, and we've zipped around the back, we've run around the back and other people have gone, you know, up ladders on the front um other people have gone up ladders at the back because i say you're coming in at multiple floors at multiple entry points all at once with this you know shock and awe is the is the distraction plan you know and and all the windows are going in you know all the windows are getting spiked so we're not using stun but we are smashing every window we can get our hands on basically because it's you know we just want this person to be completely kind of thrown inside so sure enough, I came round the back and I think there's about half a dozen of us going in through the rear patio doors. Number three had spiked it with a hooli bar. So now you're left with this shattered glass but it stays in place and and the comedy human shape in it as we all walk through. And sure enough, as I pass number three, he just touches me on the shoulder and just says slow. Uh, and it just it just takes that second view to go, OK, no problems. You know, this is is fast, but we're we're not out of control here. We're we're keeping it together. And yeah, as I've already said, I had the glamorous job of clearing the bathroom. So and I think it was actually on the ground floor, but I knew where I was going because we'd looked at the the floor plan. So we knew exactly where we were going. Uh, so I went in through the doors. And so obviously uh, it was weapons were up. I was in um, the high position. So the weapon was in my shoulder, um, but it a safety catch on fire, but pointing slightly to the ground. In fact, I'm trying to think myself now. Yes, I was in that position actually. So it was it was in a a, a high port position. So safety catch on the safe, um, finger off trigger, and then moving forward, but uh, ready to fire should there be a threat. Um, and then I made my way to the to the bathroom and and cleared it. And you can imagine it took me a good you know ten seconds to clear this tiny bathroom and establish that there was no one in it. But the beauty was, and I think we worked out the timings on it. It was something like 35 seconds after the the, the um, front gates being ripped up by the tractor um, to two of our guys being at the foot of the bed of the main bad guy. He was in bed with his wife and he basically stirred slowly and woke up with all the sound of smashing glass and utter chaos to find two guys at the foot of his bed pointing MP5s at him, you know. Um, And he never got anywhere near that microwave, I can tell you. Um, And it was a fantastic job. You know, it was a really good job. It's the sort of thing you join the police for. And and certainly, you know, if you have to think of an intervention, um, it's about as good as it gets, to be honest with you. And and the tractor just was the icing on the cake. Uh, I don't know if that's ever happened before in British policing, um, whether it'll ever happen again, I I don't know. But um, fantastic job to be involved in. So they recovered all the evidence. Uh, The guy got a really big sentence. Um at court because obviously what he'd done was was horrendous and there was, I'm sure there was something like 10 or 20 victims, you know there's a lot of people involved um, Yeah, so it was a brilliant job, thoroughly enjoyed that one and yeah, one definitely to be remembered. Uh, so I hope you found that interesting, a little insight into intervention um, and the sort of rapid entry type uh, arm stuff uh, We'll be back next week with some more uh, In the meantime, you take it easy and I'll speak to you soon. Thanks very much for listening Cheers, bye